Welcome to Neonatology Now, the official podcast of the European School of Neonatology. Here at Neonatology Now, we are shining a light on the real-world experiences of world-renowned experts in perinatal medicine. Together, we will learn from top medical doctors, researchers, and opinion leaders to better understand how we can improve professional neonatal care in Europe and beyond. It's not just about the science. It's about the stories and experiences shaping this critical field of medicine. And now, without further ado, let me introduce you to your host, a seasoned neonatologist and our guide through these fascinating conversations, Professor Mario Rudiger. Mario, take it away. Welcome to a new episode of Neonatology Now, the podcast of the European School of Neonatology. Today's topic prenatal management of congenital diaphragmatic hernia. I'm Professor Rüdiger and my guest for today is Professor Jan de Prest from Belgium. So today it's my great pleasure to have Jan de Prest as a guest. Jan, welcome to Neonatology Now. Thank you very much for having me and Happy New Year whenever this is broadcasted. Yes. <laughs> uh, so Jan, we will have about 45 minutes to talk about recent advances in the prenatal management of congenital diaphragmatic hernia. Um, but before we get into details, I would like to briefly introduce my guest. Jan, you are a fetal surgeon and a professor of obstetrics and gynecology. Um, as far as I know, currently you work in Belgium at the Catholic University Leuven and its university hospital. You are the academic chair of the Department of Developmental and Regeneration and director of the Center for Surgical Technologies. So you have trained in fetal medicine, not only in Leuven, but also in London and Leiden. And furthermore, you attended a program at Children's Hospital Philadelphia. And being back in Europe, you have established the Eurofetus Consortium, and you have headed several clinical studies on prenatal prediction and management of fetus with CDH. So that's a short introduction from my side. What have I forgotten that is still important to you? Well, uh, I um, since five years I work part time in University College in London, Monday Tuesdays, okay. and the rest of the week I work here. Uh, that will be uh, six years now and another four years to come. And uh, indeed, I do the same type of work on that other side of the channel. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, um, so you are multi-local, not only European but British worker as well. So. <laughs> Yeah, um, and that became a little bit more complex after Brexit, after but I Brexit, have a work yeah. permit now. Okay, that's I have good. a work permit. Yeah, that's good. Um, so, do you have just as an introduction? Do you have any special experience in your career that you would like to share with our listeners? Uh, well, I, what probably most people don't know is uh, how, how do they, because you know asks uh, me about obstetrics. I started my career as a dentist and Max Fax surgeon. Okay. Uh, probably it was a genetic, uh, because my father was a dentist and I studied medicine. And then the combination of medicine and dentistry is Max Fax. I stopped it after three years because I really didn't like it very much. I mean, at that time, this was a specialty with only three, four conditions and always the mm. same treatments. And like so many gynecologists, I was 
I was attracted by the diversity that you have as an obstetrician, gynecologist, a bit of everything in one specialty, they always say, whether that is wise or not, but that was the attraction. So I changed profession from dentistry to gynecology and many of my the people who know me know me from fetal medicine, but in real life, I also do urogynecology because that is what the hospital pays me for. Okay. So I, uh, yeah, and that is a very weird combination, difficult to yeah. explain. But any, <laughs> anyway, making making it interesting. Let's put it that way. Okay. And actually, today we will discuss prenatal management of CDH. And how did you come to deal with that topic? <laughs> Also, that's another story. Uh, I mean, as many people in academic medicine, you don't really predict your career. So when I finished my OBGN training, endoscopy was like a new uh, development. It was the very beginning of video endoscopy. We did the first laparoscopic hysterectomy here in our hospital wow. when there was the fourth year of training. So that was something new. And after my training, uh, There was still military duty at that time. But the way you could get rid of your military duty was to subscribe for two years of academic research. It was like an alternative okay. way of serving the country. And uh, that is how I eventually got into research and the research subject that my professor, my mentor, Ivo Brosens, he was a big name in placentation, Uh, he was also in minimally invasive surgery, and he said, why, why don't you try to develop tools to operate the fetus in utero? Because at that time, open surgery was occasionally being practiced by the famous Michael Harrison, the famous uh, Professor Bargy in, in France. So there was a lot of interest for that, but it was open. And that's how I came into a, a PhD trajectory together with a pediatric surgeon who's also still in fetal okay. surgery at this moment. And that's how you end up in something very, very niche, which was at that time new. So so in what time we talk about? Uh, this is at the end of the 80s, beginning okay. of the 90s, okay. that we did uh, my PhD and then Eurofetus, mm -hmm. clinical medicine, yeah. this was all between 1990 and 2000. Eh? Mm -hmm. That's a long time ago. Yeah. So I think our audience is very young. And could you just explain how the management of the fetus with CDH was in the uh, 90s of the previous century? Oh, yes, uh, of course. So the management at that time was typically a diagnosis at the time of birth. Or like in one out of two, perhaps already a diagnosis prenatally because ultrasound hmm. was only introduced 10 years before. There was not necessarily everywhere screening. So some of the fetuses were still undiagnosed prior to birth. And then, of course, I mean, it's an emergency situation. Um, then the diagnosis is made again as an emergency. And in those days... Even the babies that were diagnosed before birth, planned delivery, but emergency operation hmm. after birth in a critical sick fetus or neonate by that time. And uh, at that time, the results were not that good. And they realized that the defect that a fetus has was not really the critical 
limiting step. But of course, the lung developmental problem was the most essential problem. And then they learned that they had to stabilize the fetus first. Hmm. You can wait a few days to repair the defect and then create space for the lungs to develop. But the most critical problem was neonatal management, which is so much better now today than it was at that time. Yeah. And so one very first important step was to predict mortality, postnatal mortality, prenatally. And But as you already said, the neonatal management has a big impact on mortality. So how did you manage to kind of predict the mortality prenatally or how good was your prediction? Well, uh, indeed, at that time, one must also realize that there was no standardized neonatal management. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you have a condition that you can characterize relatively well, if they are treat patients are treated in different ways, of course, you cannot make prediction models or you have to make a model for each postnatal management strategy. So in parallel, what we did is uh, trying to encourage uh, at the European scale, we were very well supported by Dick Tibull from Rotterdam, mm -hmm. uh, who was trying to build a consortium in Europe, which is called EuroCDH Consortium, to standardize the neonatal management. This really happened in parallel. Uh, our A place, for instance, was under big influence of Rotterdam, so we did what they did in Rotterdam. And so while we were collecting uh, data on prenatal morphological examination of a fetus with diaphragmatic hernia, they were developing this standardization. And so the first prediction model, which we first uh, uh, published, was actually based on cohorts from the US and Europe okay. with unstandardized mm -hmm. management. Mm -hmm. But still, the relationship between lung size and outcome was there. Not a perfect one-to-one -one relationship, but a, a kind of relationship. Small lungs, poor outcome. And uh, another thing that we then realized is the measurement that we do of the lung, which was called the lung-to-head ratio, mm -hmm. CDH, small lung, normal head size, so low LHR, we realized that this was not applicable because the lung and the head grow at a different, different pace. Yeah, okay. So corrections needed to be done. And by the time we realized that, there was this standardized management system. And then we could collect a new cohort of patients, European patients, <clears throat> and then a correction was published with a model with very much limitations uh, still, because there is variability mm. in management, even if you say it's standardized, even within one neonatal unit, the one yeah. week and the next week may not be the same. So, but uh, that, that was a fortunate thing that at least the spirit amongst neonatologists was there to try to standardize or at least compare each other's outcomes with the standardized management. And we took mm -hmm. advantage of that. Actually, that's fascinating because actually there are three different specialties. So neonatologists, obstetricians or prenatal specialists and pediatric surgeons, there are three different approaches or uh, ways to focus on this disease and they have kind of to go together. And I remember the times when, when in the early 90s, when a CDH baby was born, we tried to do surgery as quick as possible because we thought 
that's the best thing we can do. And many babies died because they were not stable. And then over the time, it has changed, first stabilizing and then the surgical uh, repair. So if you if you would summarize the available evidence now, uh, which fetus has the best chance to survive or in which infant the risk is very high to die? So I, I think that the pediatric surgeon and the neonatologist and the obstetrician do agree that the smaller the <coughs> lungs are, the lesser the outcome will be. Of course, lungs are two type of organs in one. I mean, you have airways mm -hmm. and vessels. Mm -hmm. There is also some cardiac compromise. So measuring the lung in whatever way will never be perfect because you only measure a volume. But the volume correlates with the size of the defect, and that's something the pediatric surgeon uses. He said, well, the defect is big or small, but there is a very good relationship between size of the defect, size of the lung, and the neonatal survival rate, mm -hmm. which is perturbed by other things that you cannot measure. So lung measurement is definitely a, a way to predict outcome. In left-sided diaphragmatic hernia, the size of the defect also determines whether the liver or can or cannot herniate into the chest during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And that's something that you pick up. And there is a relationship between defect size and liver herniation and between liver herniation and lung size. It is not completely understood whether it's independent from each other. But in the prediction model that we use clinically today, we use both and subdivide groups with the same lung size with liver up and down. And that seems to work. That works in America, that works in Europe. Mm -hmm. So that is for left-sided uh, diaphragmatic hernia the way to do it. In right-sided, where the liver is usually into the chest, it is mm -hmm. not a predictor because it's always there. And then there is a discussion whether it is really a different condition or not. I mean, it's not completely known, but we manage the patients before birth differently with left and right because we assume that a baby with right-sided diaphragmatic hernia is a little bit less good off with the same lung size as one with left. Okay, you, you think it's a really a matter not of size, but of position left to right side as well. Yeah. Uh, so the, the side, the left and right, it, what you basically can say that based on the most recent data, you need twice as much lung when you are a right-sided CDH okay. as compared to a left-sided. I am not sure that it's volumetric is necessarily true, but when you measure it mm -hmm. in two dimensions, it plays a role. And of course, right and left lung are different morphologically, so uh, it is something that we have observed and that some centers observe either rights have a higher mortality or they have a higher morbidity if they survive. Right. Both are possible. But the last word is not said about okay. that. Huh? And one important aspect is always a pulmonary hypertension. So it's not only a matter of, of gas exchange area from the airway side, but it's also vessel side problem. And you think there's a chance to predict this one prenatally? Well, we tried very hard. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the tools that we have 
as obstetricians, we have ultrasound and MRI, and we can measure contours. Mm. But we hope that we could also measure parenchymal yeah, yeah. architecture, vessel architecture. Yeah. Well, we can measure the main vessels, and the main vessels are a bit related to lung size, but as you know, uh, the main problem in diaphragmatic hernia is in the periphery of the lung, hmm. at the smallest level of the vessels. And those vessels we cannot directly measure. We can measure the flow to it, hmm. but in pregnancy, the flow through the lung is very minimal. It's very low, yeah. So it's a matter of can we measure the difference between extremely low and very low and low? We have tried by doing provocation tests, I mean, giving oxygen and then look at changes. But there is, as far as I know, mm. no reliable prediction test okay. based on pulmonary vascular assessment that can tell you who's going to have pulmonary hypertension that is refractory and lethal and who will not. Uh, it's very disappointing. Mm. <laughs> it's seriously a problem. Because the day we will be able to treat pulmonary hypertension in utero, we will need to have a tool to select the candidates. To find this one, yeah. yeah. And actually, another question concerning prediction: What about the dynamics of uh, during gestation? So, if you detect it very early, so is the lung to expected to uh, lung lung to head ratio expected to observed? Um, same in same gestational ages or do you see any dynamics so, so the so the correction that we make takes into account mm -hmm. the gestational age mm -hmm. and then the second question is can it change yeah. during pregnancy yeah. so well in a way you would say yes because pulmonary hypoplasia is probably a progressive disease but if you measure in the clinically relevant time period that makes when you have a good measurement, a reproducible, reliable measurement, but still in time that you can, let's say, lift your options, termination, mm -hmm. postnatal mm -hmm. management, prenatal treatment. So um, in the majority of cases that we have observed, we have seen that the lungs more or less stay in the same, same. category. There are indeed occasionally cases that the lung becomes apparently smaller later in gestation or some lungs catch up with growth but really in the vast majority you can say if Keep i stable. measure at 26 and it's very severe it's likely it's going to be severe at the end mm -hmm. the prediction model works better later in gestation always Because, of course, what you measure just before birth will be what you have after birth. The measurement error is more, the methods become more accurate. But at the end of the day, um, the lungs don't become big when mm. they were small yesterday or the opposite. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Uh, but coming now to the more pragmatic uh, aspect of treatment, prenatal treatment, um, we know that amniotic fluid is produced in the fetal lung, and you and your group have used this effect of the lung liquid production um, to treat um, or to prevent the lung hypoplasia. Could you give us just a short overview of this intervention and the history of this intervention? Yeah. So, indeed, we take advantage of the stenting force 
of the lung liquid that is naturally produced before birth. I mean, normal lungs also grow by a cyclical pressure change, lung fluid production, exhalation of the fluid. And theoretically, you can create out of a diaphragmatic pulmonary hypoplasia with a cyclical change, you can produce completely normal lungs, at least experimentally. But of okay. course, we cannot do that technically. I mean, you cannot install a valve here that would be closed for uh, two days and then one hour open and then again. So we have to do it in a different way. But so the way it works for sure is that the pressure builds up in the airways because there is an obstruction, whether you ligate or clip or put a balloon, that's mm -hmm. the same. The lung grows, you get in airways a de-differentiation into the type 1 cells. And to overcome that, we propose to reverse the occlusion before birth so that the lung can collapse again, but being bigger, gets into a maturation cycle. And at least in sheep, and to some extent in other animals, that also triggers a little bit of vascular maturation. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> in all experiments in sheep, actually also steroids were given, which may have contributed to the surfactant production. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the intervention is a, is a double intervention, occlusion and reversal, and actually a medical adjunct also quite often. Okay, that's interesting because I was not aware about these these effect of de deflation of the lung, which is necessary. But you have published these animal data showing that the biggest effect is within one or two weeks after occlusion, and it's ma yeah. mainly mesenchyme which which is growing, and but it's changing into alveolar type one cells, so they don't have any surfactant. Yeah, but so the last word also. It's Physiologically, not, okay. it's certainly not set. Huh? Okay. So if you sustain the occlusion, hmm. the growth, which is initially very sharp in the first week or even two weeks, but then it plateaus off, but it keeps on growing. And so sustaining the occlusion until birth probably increases lung size and may increase survival chances, but that surfactant depletion is also a mm -hmm. problem mm -hmm. then. And there are a few uh, patients that are born with a balloon in, in sight, and, and so they may or may not survive. Also, some researchers have used protocols where they leave the balloon until the end. Okay. But next to the physiological problem, you also have the stress of delivering a baby with closed yeah, airways. You have to do a maternally more aggressive. So it is a combination of things. And uh, yeah, that's why the temporary tracheal occlusion, which has now been tested out in the proper trial, that is what we know the most about. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering about this, uh, the, the steroid treatment, because we know steroid treatment is improving surfactant, but it's also have a negative effect on lung growth, actually. So that's a very difficult balance, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Uh, uh, we tested that out experimentally, and actually that is why we clinically never do it. We never give steroids okay. during the occlusion phase. Okay. Because indeed you would limit the proliferation, and that's actually what you're yeah. after. And if you would give it, it would be from a clinical viewpoint because you are afraid of extreme prematurity. Mm -hmm. 
But the babies are not born at the day you occlude them or not in the first seven days. I mean, the, I mean, meta-analysis show it. It is prematurity, yes, but not immediately, immediately. after yeah. the... So uh, it is, there is no good rationale to give steroids while that occlusion is still there or while everything is stable. Mm. We only give steroids when we think a baby is going to come very soon. So just like in other prematurity situations. Okay. So then you, I think you have started this FETO trial in 2008 or 2010, um, and then you published it as in 2021, finally, in New England Journal of Medicine. Um, so two different, uh, the severe and the moderate um, CDH uh, trial. Could you give us a quick summary of these data? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, first, the Clinical trial period was a bit shorter, eh? but uh, it took a, a while before we got really all the permissions mm -hmm. and then the one trial went faster than the other, but by accident, they ended up together. So what you roughly can say is these were two trials that were looking at different severity populations. These were two trials where a different treatment was given. In the severe ones, a occlusion was given between, let's say, 26 and 30 weeks, and the reversal mm -hmm. was done at 34 weeks. So you had a long occlusion with a smaller lung. In the moderate hypoplasia group, you had a shorter-lasting occlusion because we put in the balloons late because we were afraid of prematurity, and we didn't want to sacrifice chances mm -hmm. because the predicted survival in that group is 50-55%, which is already reasonable. Yeah. In the, in the severe group, the predicted survival was under 20%. So what this trial showed in the severe hypoplasia with a longer occlusion period, the survival two and a half times a little bit more higher with the prenatal treatment as compared to the postnatal treatment. I mean, 50 went to 40%, percent mm -hmm. to 40%. Mm -hmm. In the other group, with better predicted uh, survival chances, the survival went from 50 to 63 or 65 percent, mm -hmm. 63, I believe. And when you look at that, that is 1.27 times higher than what you expect, which looks like an increase, but this, the confidence interval crossed mm -hmm. one, and therefore you cannot say it's statistically different. I mean, you can say clinically it means something, but it was less than what we calculated. We later threw the data together, and that's an important thing to realize, is if you have a disease which is actually a continuum, mm -hmm. and you can express lung size as percentage of the normal as a continuous variable, rather than two categories, mm -hmm. black and mm -hmm. white, and you give a treatment of which the duration varies from patient to patient, you can actually look at the relationship duration of treatment and initial lung size. Then you can see that the relationship between the two is, the two is a, a relatively constant and that the earlier you start treating and the longer you have it in place, the more the treatment effect is. Mm -hmm. So that is why we now offer also in the moderate cases, an earlier tracheal occlusion, we expect more lung growth. 
unfortunately, at the same time, your prematurity risk goes up because it's the yes. surgery that makes the, the side effect. And so we, if we can solve the last one, then we will have a potent treatment, but not earlier than that. Hmm. I mean, that's a very important message because after publication of your two moderate compared to severe, everybody was thinking, so the severe could benefit, but the moderate will not benefit. And then a year later, you publish these reanalysis, and it's actually really changing the picture, isn't it? Um, because it's it's not a matter of severe or uh, moderate uh, disease, but it's a matter of time point of treatment or a matter of um, duration of treatment. What would you say? Uh, well, uh, at this moment... We can say duration, so theoretically you would say, I will start at 30 and I will leave the balloon until end. Okay. But that is not what we think you should do because the lung growth falls off later in gestation for a, a number of reasons, not important now. So it's better to start, start earlier. treating earlier, reversing at the same time, because you don't want to end up because they will have prematurity in an emergency situation where you have problems with the airways. Mm. So the current attitude is judge in your own hands in the environment where you work what the expected survival rate is in moderate cases. And in that group where you see that you have a relatively low survival, 30, 40%, perhaps even 50%, whether it is not worth trying to increase that by inserting the balloon also in moderate cases, but mm. earlier. Mm -hmm. And of course, at some stage, there will be a lack of benefit and it's very difficult to calculate. And I think that is now the data from the, the current experience in the big centers that did the total trial. We are collecting numbers on earlier occlusions in moderate hypoplasias. Okay. And then we may be able, not in the perfect way, it's not a randomized trial, but we may be able to judge until here and not further because mm. that can be solved postnatally. But it will be always a very dis difficult discussion because it will not be a randomized trial, of course. Mm. But I think that's a very important aspect because we have a very similar discussion with hypothermia treatment. So we know above 36 weeks of gestation, it's beneficial. Below 36 weeks of gestation, it's harmful. And But 36 weeks is not kind of magical border. So we have some kind of continuum and we, maybe we have to reanalyze this data of hypothermic treatment as well. Very similar to these um, cutoff of 25% of um, below or above um, concerning lung-to-head ratio. Um, But one important aspect you mentioned was the experience of the center. And if I remember correctly, that was a major message in your publication saying it's not a thing that should be done in every unit, but you need certain experience in the center and your certain experience. And, and what do you think? What is a cutoff or how many patients should be treated? This is very difficult. I mean, I would have hoped that you at the neonatal site mm -hmm. who has been there already with this problem for 20, 30 years, that you would have agreed on what is the minimum caseload? Mm -hmm. What are the expected 
survival rates with a certain caseload, what we accept as morbidity. So that has not been solved postnatally. It is very difficult to solve it prenatally, but I can give you a few indications okay. and then other people can make the interpretation. It starts with assessment. Mm -hmm. There is already a learning process and a volume effect ratio if you see patients with this condition often or not. So to do accurate measurements to make the prediction is one thing. Then there is the experience with the surgery. I don't say this is not a neurosurgical intervention that is very difficult. No, it's a relatively basic intervention which you can learn. But you learn to do that because you do other fetoscopic interventions. Mm -hmm. So centers that do this may learn that. But then there is the third thing. It's removing the balloon. Yep. And, and that is not like something you can try. It needs to work, and it needs to work within 40 seconds. Yeah? So that accumulation and the total trial showed yeah, because two babies died because of the treatment, yeah. one because of patient compliance, but one because of doctor's compliance. Okay. So <clears throat> I think it's like so many things. I mean, you will not start an ECMO without ever having done either. So, yeah. so uh, it's a matter of rationality. And uh, I am sure caseload helps for this mm. condition, like for anything else, for this procedure, like for anything else. But that doesn't mean that it is not learnable. I mean, I, I didn't say that. But yeah. in Europe, we probably don't need like two, three centers per, for each country. Eh? That would mean whatever number you want to come up with. Yeah, eh? yeah. So actually, I have to admit, Germany is a very poor example of centralization. We have so many centers which are taking care of extremely preterm babies of CDH and so on. But that's a different topic. Um, You already mentioned the different approach on the right side. And if I remember correctly, there are some groups trying to treat right-sided uh, CDH as well with uh, fetal occlusion. Yes, we have done so as well. So the only difference <coughs> is that we take a, a different cutoff. I mean, we every lung, fetus with a lung under 50%, uh, is eligible for treatment because the predicted survival rate is then around 20%. And that increases. It's a, the same treatment effect. And this is why it shows that it works the same way there. You increase the survival rate by a factor 2.4 or 2.5. Mm -hmm. So that is why we treat them as well uh, with the same protocols. And uh, yeah, we have seen increased survival rates. Okay. So now talking about the future, if you talk 10 years later again, <laughs> what, what, what are the next steps you would have done in this time to improve prenatal management of CDH infants? Well, first of all, I, I would like, uh, if I look back, I would have liked to have done this trial earlier. Okay. Uh, because we would not have taken that long to get to a randomized trial that was completed. So for anything that we do new, we should try to move early in the process to an evaluation of what we do. So you're we talking about randomized trials or Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and then I say that as well to the neonatology. I mean yeah, solve your yeah, issues definitely. as well because and you because you can. You can yeah. and, and 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 there is enough consensus and, yeah. and certainly Europe is trying to do that. Number two is 
what is of course wrong with this treatment is that it is not good enough. I mean, if you leave uh, 50% of the patients non-surviving in the most severe cases, that is definitely a failing therapy. Mm -hmm. So we need more potent therapies. But there are three or four things that are in the pipeline that we evaluate and others are working on. It is the use of, we tried sildenafil, we had to stop the the trial, yep. the phase one trial, because sildenafil is now forbidden in pregnancy. So we now do that with reprostinol. We are working with extracellular vesicles, nano delivery of growth factors, VEGF, etc. That's on the prenatal side. The other thing is that we are changing is the device. We, we have now uh, finished a trial. Only one patient left of the 46 to do is a balloon that you can deflate from the outside without invasive yeah, uh, procedure. Yeah, yeah. So it's called the smart balloon. It was invented in Strasbourg by Dr. Sananes. And so we've done the animal experiments mm -hmm. and we've now nearly finished the clinical trials. And that will be a game changer because that would mean that a patient can return to its own institution and the balloon can be released by exposure to a magnetic yeah. field. Which would also mean that insertion of the balloon can be centralized huh? because you can go somewhere yeah. and then leave the day after. Nothing will happen to you. So these are things that in this condition are in the pipeline. But of course, it's all still either semi-invasive. So that mm. medical therapy needs to, to move on. And I am sure, I am sure that a lot will change postnatally as well in the future, I mean, certainly working on this artificial placenta, the people mm, in Philadelphia mm, mm, are treating fetuses with CDH, I mean, lamb fetuses on the yeah. artificial placenta. Yeah. I mean, this is probably the wet dream of every neonatologist to have such a machine that, that they can play with things, either very preterms or term, but that are not on the ventilator. And what, what, what is your opinion on surgical repair prenatal? Oh, uh, I think I'm the worst person. I mean, I, I am a surgeon, but I'm the worst person to comment. What I've seen or what I observe in meetings uh -huh. is that indeed they're moving away from uh, bigger incisions that thoracoscopically yeah, they yeah, become yeah. better, that they use patches, which I also use in my field, which then are very liberal so that the fetus while it's growing, that uh, patch takes okay. a, its uh, correct position. Mm -hmm. That seems to be improving the outcomes. Um, I don't know whether they will find magic techniques like tissue engineer techniques for that. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know. But, um, I mean, the surgery is, we must admit, not the bottleneck of these conditions. Yeah. The surgeons are good. When they get a stable patient, yeah. the yes. outcome will be good. They can operate even on ECMO, etc. I mean, they they are good. So, but you have to get them to the operation. Okay. That is yeah, where it's all good. about. Okay. Okay, Jan. That was very interesting um, to talk about and and very fascinating idea. I'm still thinking about the the device which could maybe could be developed to to open and close during the uh, or during the placement or after the placement um, that would be fascinating to see and yeah, one, so, so far the remedy is still worse than the solution so yeah, we cannot yeah. make a valve that is clinically usable yeah. and actually we, we have another problem in neonatology with um, lung hypoplasia and that's after um, rupture of membranes 
So these babies also have lung hyperplasia. Has somebody ever tried to put a, a balloon in these Absolutely. babies? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, I mean, Professor Kohl in Germany did publish, I don't know yeah, how yeah. big the experience, but he mm -hmm. published uh, on the use of tracheal occlusion, and, and I am sure it, it will trigger lung growth. But there is one thing in fetal therapy in general that we have to uh, admit you have. It's the case selection. Mm -hmm. So when you would like to treat a patient with long-standing ruptured membranes, you would need to define the patient that has lethal yeah. pulmonary hyperplasia. Yeah, yeah. And um, our prediction model doesn't work very well. And it is relatively difficult. <clears throat> and the best candidate would be a very early rupture, mm -hmm. which is already quite a while there. So that's the worst one to operate because this will be an infected environment, etc. So, so uh, it becomes uh, very complex. Uh, 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 and uh, and if you cannot select properly or you introduce a maternal risk, mm -hmm. then you really have to think twice. Yeah, that's a big issue. Yeah. Okay. So, Jan, thank you very much. At the end of our talk, um, just one personal question for our audience. Do you have any recommendation for students who are at the beginning of their career? Well, uh, as you, as they will have heard, is that there are enough unsolved yeah. questions. So I, I, I often give talks because I am a surgeon, of course, here. I, I say even people who do surgery There are so many surgical challenges mm -hmm. still unsolved. Dedicate part of your training to training in research, and you may find the appetite to go into research. Surgeons don't do it enough, and uh, you can help solving the questions by doing translational basic research as well. Don't do only clinical research. There is enough work to do. And it gives so much pleasure because otherwise your job becomes pretty boring if you have to do 30 years the same, <laughs> the same clinical work. So that's my recommendation, but I'm a little bit biased, I must say. That's a very good advice and a very good final word. Um, Jan, thank you very much. Vielen Dank. That was it again. Neonatology Now, the podcast of the European School of Neonatology. Mario Rüdiger on the mic and my guest for today, Jan de Prest. Thank you for listening. <laughs>